all in sync. No, you're trying to like you're uh, warming up your mouth. Mama made me mash my M and M's. Right? Yeah. Mama made me mash my M and M's. Yeah, it's a it's a mouth warm up. It's an enunciation warm up. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. Mama this made is the me mash my M&M's. <laughs> All right. I know red leather and yellow leather. <laughs> that is definitely one. Ka-cha-cha. Oh, ka-cha-cha. <laughs> Chickens don't clap. All right, so this is uh, classical stuff. You were recording this whole time? <laughs> no, sorry. Yes. Did you think I was not recording? I, I recorded every bit of uh, that, it's so and it is 100% in the episode. Uh, Welcome to Classical Stuff. You should know this is AJ Hannenberg. Uh, we... <laughs> With my two buddies, <laughs> Thomas, that was him, just Hi. laughing now, and Hi. we got Graham Donaldson over there with the brrrr, and we are a podcast about the classical world, old books, old thoughts, old philosophy, old things, and we are trying to bring the classics to you in a painless and wonderful way. <laughs> we are generalists, so we're not, you know, necessarily experts at any one of these given things. There's a, there's a few that we're pretty ex- ex- experted in, but, you know, we're, we're a generalist podcast, and I, I think that's all I have to say about that, Right. Sure, you can say whatever you want to, man. There's probably a lot to say about that intro. There's <laughs> probably a lot to say. It's life-changing. I think we've introed enough, and I can make the whole pun pun based on the topic, but it would just be some version of Nothing Matters, so let's uh, let's talk to Thomas. Cool. Okay, so um, we are talking about Nietzsche and... Nailed it. Nailed it. I'm going to be honest. I think that intro is better than our episode 200 intro. I, um, I agree. Okay, good. As long as we're on the same page with that. Okay. Um, uh, yes, I'm talking about Nietzsche. I'm specifically talking about a book of his called The Genealogy of Morals. Book, essay, I don't know. It's a book. And the... Isn't that a screed? No, what's that word? Like a, were you, like a crazy person writing something down? A diatribe? Yeah. Manifesto? Manifesto. No, 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 it's a manifesto. It's not quite like that. There's a, not a manifesto? I know there's another word, and it's not coming to me. It'll, I'm sure it'll become here in a minute. Uh, I talked about... So this is kind of a continuation of my episode on Giacomo Leopardi, who was an Italian poet. And I guess also a prose writer, because that'll come up in a little bit. And a ladies' man. Except exact, literally the opposite. He, Leopardi loved one woman, and she rejected him because Leopardi smelled bad. So that's like actually her quote. So life is rough for the poor man. So all of this goes back to me listening to this podcast from First Things, where it was talking about nihilism and these kind of two different approaches to nihilism. One is this Leopardian method. One of them is this Nietzschean method. And the thing I'm looking for in going to both of their works directly is to see, is there a reason why faced with the same set of facts, the meaninglessness of everything around a person, one, per, one person tends toward the, a type of nihilism is the word I'll use, but it's probably an insufficient word, but one person tends toward a philosophy wherein nothing matters, therefore we should reject life and hate life, which is Leopardi's approach. You can listen to that episode if you want to. Whereas Nietzsche sees that there's no meaning to anything around us, but comes to a very different conclusion, which I guess we'll talk about over the course of this episode, that we need to create that meaning in some sense. Um, Me saying that probably sounds like existentialism. You'll sometimes see Nietzsche called an existentialist for that reason. Um, But that's kind of the question I'm I'm getting at. Faced with meaninglessness, why why is there one philosophy that says, therefore, death is awesome, and another one that says, therefore, live the best life that you can live? You have any? Just to, have I set up the the this sufficiently? Have I made mm-hmm. sense for why I'm approaching it? I'm there. Cool. <clears throat> so the second reason for wanting to continue with the series is that I saw a movie, and that movie is called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I think Graham has not seen this movie. I will say nothing about it because he has not seen it, which we talked about in our AMA. Proud of you, Graham. It's it's so good though. Okay, do you want to say more? It's very good. 
Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to give spoilers. I don't know what you're going to say. So. Oh, but it's more fun if you like say lots of positive things and then I undercut you. Oh, it's wonderful, and I really enjoyed it, and it's surprising, and I love the hot dog fingers thing. That's a thing. It's also in the trailer, so that's not a spoiler. Yeah. Okay, so Everything Everywhere All at Once is a great movie experience. It is an overwhelming movie experience to the point that I'm, like, totally swept up in the experience of watching this movie. I don't. I also don't want to spoil it, and I think we'll talk about it more in our in-between episode because it probably fits better there. It's a movie from the Daniels, I think is what they call themselves. Daniel Kwan and Daniel mm-hmm. Scheinart, Scheiner, Schein, I don't know how to pronounce it. Schinard. Schinard. And they previously directed Swiss Army Man, if you've seen that. That's the one with uh, Harry Potter, who's a dead man. Which I've heard was very good, but I haven't, I haven't seen, seen it. it. No. <clears throat> and then Everything Everywhere All at Once is a plot that I don't really want to spoil. If you're interested, just look up the trailer. It's difficult to describe. If you want to see it, just go see it. But my... There's this tension in the movie that I'm not spoiling anything. I'm just saying these are kind of the ideas that the movie is dealing with of these kind of two approaches to meaninglessness. And there's one approach to meaninglessness that says, because everything is meaningless, everything should die and I should be the one to kind of bring about death. And another approach that says, because everything is meaningless, we need to find connection and we need to hold tightly to those connections and we should do what we want, do what we enjoy because there's no other meaning to be found in life. And that's kind of the, you know, the, the tension set up in this movie. So I think the movie is also showing this, this two different options to meaninglessness, Leopardi and Nietzsche, and probably unsurprisingly tends toward a Nietzschean direction. The thing I'm just having trouble with is I don't see how that's like an, why is that a better option than the other one, if I'm saying that well. Um, I'll probably be more insulting about it in the in-between. I think it's a probably dumb movie that's targeted at smart people because it, traffics in these like high-minded ideas but ultimately is like kind of a fun just pretty movie to watch like dude where's my car uh no more cg a lot Mm. more cg Uh, and and many more hot dog fingers so clearly that's the i I also have not seen dude where's my car so i don't know if it maybe that's a towering achievement of intellectual insight but oh okay i have not seen it so you you don't think it's everything it's cracked up to be i think in terms of movie experience I don't, I'm sure it's not in theaters anymore, but like that's the perfect movie to sit in a theater and be totally overcome by because it's like the uh, fast moving pictures and loud sounds are like so overwhelming to win you over to the story and the argument that's being made in the movie. I think 30 seconds after leaving the theater and thinking about the message of it, I think it all falls apart. And maybe that's what I'll want to talk about more in the in-between. But that's, I, I think as a movie, it's a great experience in terms of like, a work of intellect. I, I find it lacking. Yeah, I could probably get on that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm talking more about the experience of the film. Like yeah. it's, it's a great joy to be in that movie theater. Yeah. yeah. Again, and, that, and if you can find it on a screen, you should just go see mm-hmm. it. As long as you're, it might be R, I don't remember what it's rated, but uh, as long as you're the right age and are up for watching it. Yeah. Um, and it's like, it's it's a movie that will genuinely surprise you as you, as you listen and watch through it. Mm-hmm. But just in terms of the ideas that it's trading in, I think it doesn't ultimately or satisfactorily answer the questions it sets up. And again, that's what we'll, we'll talk about during our in-between. If you want to listen to our in-between episodes, you can find those on Patreon. All right. Frederick Nietzsche, what do you all know about this man? I mean, just like a teddy bear of a guy. Um, <laughs> well, he was a teddy bear and then he had a giant mustache. So I mm-hmm. guess in terms of like there, there's lots of fur on him. Yes, he is. A, Didn't he get rejected by his cousin and then went bananas? Salome was not his cousin, I don't think. Okay. But Died he, of syphilis. He, uh, that, okay. Sorry, I went crazy. Because of syphilis. Uh, also disputed, but often the thing that's said about him. He, yeah, okay, those are all things. Give me more. 
Ah, uh, modern. This is very funny. Modern though. prophet of the age. I guess that's true. That's German. German. Pre World War One. Yes, also true. Things leveled at him is that he's he said the whole God is dead thing, and but he wasn't trying to prove that. It was a premise for him. That's also true. Yeah. Also, sometimes that's viewed as kind of a triumphalist statement when... Yeah, when he the, wasn't saying that. He's not very happy. Well, or at least, again... It's God t- is dead and we have killed him. We have nothing to replace him with. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was more saying, like, that we have done this unhooks us from all morality, and that's a big problem, and we're going to have to figure this out. Yeah. And deal with that problem, exactly. Yeah. And then that's kind of what ushers in, like, the rest of his thinking of, like, what do we do in the face of that? And also... Yes. We have unhooked the world from the chain of being or something like that? That sounds right. It's kind of the same ideas. Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, AJ, you've made reference to some of his, how did he feel about uh, Christians or religious people? He, and weirdly enough, I think his criticisms are good, but he said that we we stank of death because we keep on looking towards the next world rather than paying attention to this one. And that's maybe something that's sometimes true. People will only be paying attention to what comes next rather than enjoying, that, that paying attention that we are here to live life to the fullest, right? That the yoke is easy and the burden is light here in the now time. Um, and he had some other really good criticisms of Christianity, but some that I, I was not exactly on board with, but he doesn't think we're great. He does not have great things to say about no, he religion not. in general. A slave morality, right? He doesn't call like, it that. That's that in Christianity is. Uh, and one of, and one of my favorite criticisms that he calls a religion of specific love where you love specific people, a religion of weakness and a religion of diffuse love like Buddhism, where it's, you know, I kind of love everybody a little bit is one of strength. And I think that is a ridiculous criticism because if you've ever actually been in love with someone, it is way more difficult love yeah. to love one person than it is to say like, yeah, I love everybody. Like it's, I had, a, I was with him all the way up until, until he said that. that. And I was like, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's funny. Cause here in genealogy of morals, he has some very negative things to say about, all religion, but Buddhism specifically on kind of this, the eradication of desire is a form of denying oneself will to power, which is an idea we'll talk about. No one's safe. Uh, I mean, kind (laughs) of, honestly, I think that's ultimately his project is to not to tear down everything. He's trying to help people deal with um, the lack of meaning or deal with uncertainty. And he, he finds that the options that are offered to people are lacking. And religion's the most common one, so that's the one that gets a lot of brunt of his criticism. Yeah, I think he's trying to he's trying to build a new edifice now that he sees that religion is either dead or dying. Yes. Yeah. So that's again, if you you'll hear some quotes, they're probably from Wikipedia, apologies in advance. If you go to Wikipedia and read the Frederick Nietzsche page, you shouldn't do that, but you could if you wanted to. And if you look under like schools of thought, he's he's associated both with nihilism and with anti-nihilism. <laughs> Right. Which I think that just kind of captures perfectly <laughs> th- this entire episode of he's not. And I'm, I'm 1000 percent sure we're not going to make it to the part three of the genealogy of morals. But even the pursuit of truth isn't a goal. He believes the pursuit of truth is a goal that has to be justified because in seeking truth, we're actually seeking to impose um, our power over these disparate facts to force them together. What's important is that we are the ones forcing something of truth, not that there's some objective truth outside of us. If that Mm -hmm. makes no sense, welcome to this entire episode. Well, that just sounds like two Wikipedia guys having a fight. Oh, no. There's one guy that's like, ah, he's a nihilist. One guy's like, he's definitely not. And they just keep editing the page. But in the genealogy of morals, book we'll talk about, I promise, uh, Nietzsche has negative things to say about nihilists. He doesn't think the, the belief that nothing has any meaning, therefore we should just give up, he thinks is like the what will lead to the decline of 
mankind and is like the great evil to overcome, which is then why he's negative on Buddhism. So in that sense, I see him as not being a nihilist, but in the sense of, uh, the entire point of genealogy of morals is to set up. Why do we have morals? Where do our morals come from? And surprise, they're all made up. We'll, we'll get into the argument he makes, but to tear them all down, that's nihilism, right? To say that all values that we've ever held aren't actually proven intellectually or true as some transcendental. They're just these social things that we've come up with and passed on through power dynamics over time. That's a form of nihilism, right? So this, uh, this tension is kind of what defines Nietzsche's ideas of he's not really seeking one coherent philosophy because coherency is a type of power that one is seeking. I'll go into all this, I promise. These are like, his, anyway, I'll get into it. Uh, let me do a little background on the guy first. Normally, probably background is not, you know, it's easy to get bogged down in background, but I think his background matters to the ideas that he has. And we'll see some of those things that exist in his background come up again in his ideas. So that's what makes it relevant. He's born in 1844. So he's born in Prussia. I don't know a lot about like pre-World War I Germany, but essentially this idea of a German federation, I believe comes out of Prussia. And then the, like a German empire is like kind of joined together with like Prussia is like the center group that is bringing this about. Um, but uh, he's called a German philosopher. Um, I think Prussia is a kingdom of, uh, anyway, none of these things are, are important. Feel free you to get them if you want to. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they so, have an empire, little yeah. bits of Africa. Yeah. Yes. You're talking about the empire itself, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but so he's born in, yeah, in Saxony in Prussia. His father and brother die when he is five years old. So when he's very young, his father was a minister. And um, so there's kind of this importance of religion in the household. So after his father dies, father and brother die, separate causes. I think father had some kind of illness. Um, I think and brother had a separate one, but it wasn't, it, they happened six months apart. They weren't related to each other. So anyway, after that, uh, Nietzsche and his mother and sister, so there are three of them, move in with Nietzsche's mother's mom, so his maternal grandmother. They live there for about 10 years, and then they move into a new house. In this house, I, I just love this, it's called the Nietzsche House, H-A-U-S, Nietzsche House. So like, if you want to go study Nietzsche, like this is the place to go. It's, uh, I believe, a research center devoted to Nietzsche now, but it's literally called the Nietzsche House, which I thought was pretty cool. As you might imagine, for a guy who would eventually have important philosophical ideas, he, he tended to follow an academic path. You can find funny, like, report cards of his where he's, like, really bad at, like, Hebrew and really bad at math, but tended to do really well on other subjects, uh, but generally pursued education. Around the age of 20, he was going to go become a minister, um, but unsurprisingly, this went poorly. One semester into the program, he lost his faith and then subsequently dropped out of the program. So uh, one semester, that's one, that's all he made it. That's, yeah. That's one semester. I'm sure, I'm sure there's more to that background if anyway, but the, he, he made it one semester before dropping out is the important part. So that is at the age of 20. So that's around 1864, 1865. He discovers the works of Arthur Schopenhauer. Um, that, you know, obviously Schopenhauer is another like 20 part series in a different direction that I don't want to go down. What's probably most relevant is that he is a good embodiment of the philosophical school of pessimism, which will then influence the work of Nietzsche through, you know, uh, and pessimism doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as just feeling bad all the time. It is its own philosophical path, but I'm going to leave that where it is. At the age of 24, so a few years later, 
He is offered his first teaching job. Do you all want to guess what his first subject he's teaching is? Ethics. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. History? Uh, classical philology. Of course, you were never going to hmm. guess that. Sorry. So we'll go, we'll go into more of it later, I'm sure. I say every time and never do. What is philology? So philology is, uh, it's a fancy version of looking at the history of words and then using that information to determine where that idea or where those words come from. So can I give you an example of this? So the word whiskey, do you know what that word comes from? Have you all heard this before? Nope. Okay. The whisk they use to stir the drink? So whiskey comes from two words. The two words are... I'm going to butcher all these pronunciations. I'm, I'm not sorry about this. It uh, comes from Usque Bay, which is two Gaelic words, Usque, which is water, and Bethu, which is life. So whiskey is the water of the life. Water of life. Water of life. So that's like an interesting thing on the meaning of it is that people liked it a lot. But it's also made up of two Gaelic words. So what's something that that tells us about the word whiskey? It's Gaelic. Yeah. And so where does that mean whiskey comes from? Gales. Uh, nor, uh, isn't that northern uh, Ireland? Ireland. So uh, that gives us some sense of the history of this thing, whiskey. Mm-hmm. Where did the word come from? Came from Northern Ireland. And then what's also interesting is that we, uh, in 2022, also have the word whiskey. So what does that mean? There's some chain of events that takes it from Northern Ireland and brings it to the United States. So those are things we learn by looking at the word, uh, Usquabe, water of life, and that can tell us something about the word whiskey. Where does whiskey come from? Where did it probably travel through? And then how did it get to us now to give us the word whiskey? That's my very boiled down version of what philology is. I would like some whiskey to travel through me right now. That would be great. <laughs> it, would, it would be the water of life to you, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But so that is, so philology. It, um, we've ta- I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but like Tolkien was a philologist or mm-hmm. uh, Lewis's main character in the space trilogy was a philologist. How is this different than etymology? I don't think that's a field. Of, is that a field of study? I thought the so. study of the origin of words. I know, but like, are there etymologists? I think they're philologists. Is, I, think I, that, I assume so. There's got to be etymologists around somewhere. I don't know. But, Isn't like that, that loser from um, uh, the Da Vinci Code an etymologist? Do you mean the main character? Yeah. Or do you mean Dan Brown? Which one are you No, the main character. I watched did, the um, the newest one. Did you read and or watch? You did watch this. I watched, I didn't watch Da Vinci Code. No. I read the Da Vinci Code. Okay. Back off. <laughs> um, so, you, <laughs> so you can criticize this is what um, you're saying. But I watched the Angels and Demons. Is that the newest one? Uh, I don't know if it's the It was where Ewan McGregor is the devil or something like that. It was bad. Oof. Did not watch it. Anyway. Also did not, did not read that book. I have no idea what his field of study is. I apologize. Uh, okay. But so this is so Nietzsche's first role in academia is as a classical philologist, meaning he's doing this kind of study of where do these words come from and what does that tell us about those ideas and for classical languages. So um, Greek and Latin, though, apparently, again, he was bad at Hebrew growing up, but hopefully he figured it out. He did not have a Ph.D. at this time, didn't have a teaching certificate and to this day is still one of the youngest chairs um, in the classics ever. He was 24 years old at the time which again, to get a PhD, to be given a teaching position like that, you're just very unlikely to be 24 years old. Uh, This is just a, do we have the bell nearby? Can you grab the bell? I want to say a metal thing and I want the bell to ring as I say it. Uh, So this is just a a fun fact about him that before he went to the University of uh, Basel to teach, Nietzsche renounced his Prussian citizenship, citizenship for the rest of his life 
he remained officially stateless. Is that pretty metal? Oh, you, don't think you can metal? ring the metal bell. Wait, are you the officiant of what is metal? I think so. I mean, um, unless Donaldson. I apologize. Wants to be. I'm sorry that mm. I had Graham grab the bell. I, I should have. Had you, are you the metal? No, no, bell? you are. You've you've spent more time with fins than I have. <laughs> are they much it's more true. metal? Okay. Uh, after this, so Nietzsche's in academic land at this point. He starts publishing books. He publishes the Birth of Tragedy. He insults the field that he just barely started teaching in. So he insults classical philology. He praises his friend uh, Wagner. Probably a thing I should have mentioned. He meets and becomes close with Wagner during this time. Like the opera Wagner? Yes. Oh, is it is it Richard Wagner? Is it Richard Wagner? I don't oh. know. See, this is the thing. I just make this make it up as I go. But like that Wagner, the, the ring cycle guy, he becomes friends with him. Wagner. I once watched a German. I was hanging out with a German who was listening to Wagner on a record, and he just he cried. What? Well, I mean, it's like an emotionally overwhelming experience, right? Yeah. I, I have not had this experience, but I am told. Apparently, there's a really great version where they filmed the opera that was done in New York and that has these like absolutely amazing sets. Like just, you're in a theater, but it's like wheels and stages that rotate and it's supposed to be absolutely incredible. So anyway. Um, I have not no watched I. Wagner, I apologize. So he becomes close with him during this time. Uh, Birth of Tragedy will establish some of the ideas that will come up later, this kind of if you've heard this distinction between Apollonian and Dionysian, this is a thing that Nietzsche will return to many, many times to drastically oversimplify because it does not come up in the genealogy of morals or at least in the part I'm talking about. This Apollonian is the ordered, is a kind of a mm. spirit of orderliness and the Dionysian is this kind of spirit of chaos. And these are archetypes that are seen throughout time. Archetypes is maybe a more Jungian term, but like that's just kind of this thing he's, he's, tra he's tracing. He'll talk about Wagner is being important to a kind of resurrection of drama in the modern age. He's very positive on Wagner at this time. That relationship will sour over time, which is the only reason I really bring it up. You don't say. You don't Relationship say. with Nietzsche souring over time. Yeah, he essentially burned every bridge that he came across. So not a, not a great guy. He, in 1878, published a book called Human All Too Human, which is a, uh, a book of aphorisms, so like sayings. Uh, Nietzsche has a very funny style of writing that I'm sure I'll get into. Oh, we'll get into some very funny quotes in a little bit, but, uh, he views himself more as a prophet than as a philosopher. I would say this is my interpretation. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm uh, AJ's caveat at the beginning that we're all generalists in this. And I'm sure there are Nietzsche experts who would disagree with literally every sentence I've said, but he seems to have a very high view of himself and his project. It's not just, searching for ideas to get to something that's true. It's to rail, not rail, to reform the world in the way that it is. Anyway, so he publishes this book in 1878, Human All Too Human. His university hates it. Uh, he's also getting sick around the same time. And so there's kind of this agreement to part ways. Again, this is also kind of a disputed thing. Some people say it's mostly his sickness that causes him to leave. Some people say it's mostly the university being very sick of his approach to academics because it's not very academic. Um, and around, let's see. So he, at this point has published two books over the course of six years. So 1872 to 1878, I believe over the next six years, he'll publish one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight books. Some of those might be essays, but he publishes eight works over the next six years. So when we think about Nietzsche, like this is this six year period is where he kind of lays everything out. 
This is where we get Thus Spoke Zarathustra. This is where we get Beyond Good and Evil on the genealogy of morality, which is the one that I promise we're getting to eventually. And then the rest are not really, they're not as popular. Those are kind of the big ones. His final book that he writes in 1888 and is not published until 1908 is called Eke Omo. Do you all know what that means? Behold the man. Behold the man. It was what Pilate said when he was presenting Christ to the, to the crowd. Yes. So that's the name of the book, Behold the Man, but it's in the Latin version. That's the Latin Vulgate says Eke Omo. The subtitle of this book is How One Becomes What One Is. And this book contains several chapters. I will just read some of the titles. Why I Am So Wise, Why I Am So Clever, Why I Write Such Good Books, <laughs> and Why I Am a Destiny. Uh, which I why is, I am a destiny. Why I am a destiny, which I believe is the last chapter of the book. And the rocks on this guy. Yeah, I know. The he signs the book, Dionysus versus the crucified. Uh, so he is Dionysus. So he has deified himself in some way. And I assume Christians are the crucified. Oh Probably. no, Jesus is Jesus the crucified. Is crucified yeah. yeah. So I've not read this book, so I can't criticize it. But there are some very funny titles. Is all I can say from having read those titles. Um. So clearly something has happened toward the end where he has this very vaunted view of himself. Even if he's placing himself as the pilot in this situation, that's like a very important role that he is giving to himself. Does anyone know what happens at the end of his life? Doesn't he lose his mind? He loses his, yeah. He suffers a mental breakdown. Um, I think Graham might've made reference to the cause of it also, which we'll get to. But he in 1889, he suffers a mental breakdown. There is a is legend the right word or mythical account of what happened is that he was in the town square in a town square, saw a horse being beaten, being flogged. And so he was so overcome and horrified at this event that he ran over to the horse and he threw his arms around the horse and he suffered his mental breakdown right then. He was just so overwhelmed by seeing this horse be attacked. It's probably not what happened, but that's like the account that you'll hear of what happened. Truth is we don't really know what happened. After this, he starts writing, they're called delusion notes. Um, I can read you one of them because I just have it pulled up. Uh, uh, here it is. I have had Caiaphas put in fetters. Also last year, I was crucified by the German doctors in a very drawn out manner. Wilhelm, Bismarck, and all anti-Semites abolished. So that's like, that's a note he wrote to one of his colleagues. So something has clearly happened. At the time, he was diagnosed with tertiary syphilis. That is obviously very much disputed now, but it's what they wrote at the time. He suffers a stroke in 1899, and he is paralyzed. He will then uh, die in 1900, I believe. That's much later in my notes for some reason. Um, part of all this in doing this background is kind of a form of throat clearing because when I hear Nietzsche, I very much think of his association with the Nazis. Maybe you all don't. Is that a thing that you all think of at all? Maybe not. No, I don't. Oh, okay. So obviously he um, predates like the Nazi party, but um, his, he was respected as a thinker among the Nazis and was also writing at the kind of, at the time of this German unification. Obviously he died pre like the fullness of that, but I think 1870 is when kind of the German empire gets founded and formed. So he's, he's writing during that time. Um, when he becomes unable to speak, when he suffers his stroke, uh, his sister comes back to Germany. Uh, his sister had been in Paraguay. Do y'all know anything about this? Yes. Can you say anything about it? Uh, all I know is that there is a big contingent of German 
Protestants who who moved who who went to Paraguay. Yes. And started. There's like still German it's, villages in Paraguay to this day. Still there. Yeah. We have friends in Canada because in the Mennonite community who grew up in Paraguay and are German and then now live in Ontario. So there's this there's this like weird German Mennonite community in Paraguay. So this maybe this is why they're there, but Elizabeth and her husband went out there with the explicit intention. So this is Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche's sister, Elizabeth, goes to Paraguay with her husband to establish this um, community that was explicitly supposed to be like a racially pure community. And the name of it was Nueva Germania. And they brought, I had the number, I don't no, see I it. know about that part. <laughs> and that's why I'm saying it's unrelated or maybe as part of why it was established. But this yeah. this colony fails ultimately. But there is still a Nueva Germania in Paraguay, if I'm not mistaken. And so they go, they bring like a dozen families or so, and they want to establish this like pure Germany in Paraguay. That's the intention that they go out there with. This is kind of like around the time of like eugenics movements sure. and stuff, wanting good blood. And so that's Elizabeth's motivation. And it fails. They have trouble getting supplies established down there. It takes people a long time to get there. These 14, these 12 or 14 families don't really want to go to Paraguay. They'd rather be in Germany. So the colony doesn't, uh, doesn't last very long. The they have financial problems. Ultimately, Elizabeth's husband um, commits suicide over his like dis- despair at the failure of this community to be established. So she comes back to Germany, and she comes back to Germany around uh, 1894, 93, 94, and this is a few years after. So five years, four or five years after Friedrich Nietzsche has had his uh, break, his mental breakdown. She very quickly establishes what's called the Nietzsche Archive, which I think is still in existence, but it's like the collection of the works of Friedrich Nietzsche. And she gets to work compiling um, what she calls Nietzsche's magnum opus. And the name of this magnum opus is appropriately Will to Power, which is an important idea in Nietzsche that I promise we'll talk about 14 episodes from now. Uh, it's such an important idea that Nietzsche makes reference to him writing this book at the end of Genealogy of Morals. He says, I'm writing this book. It's the will to power. It's going to be my most important book. Well, Elizabeth is the one who takes on the mantle of putting that book together from previous writings of Nietzsche. So she compiles them. And what she's not very clear about is that she's cutting it very specifically because she's wanting it to match her views on racial purity, eugenics, uh, not great ideas that will eventually be picked up by the Nazis, but at this point predates the Nazi party. She then publishes this book in 1901, The Will to Power. This is after Nietzsche has died and therefore obviously can't do anything about it. It's then worked on and and things are added to it. And I want to say a final version comes out in like 1910 or something. Uh, Scholars, it took until the, about the 1960s from what I was reading for scholars to essentially say this is a misrepresentation of what Nietzsche thought. Um, I guess if it's not... And that was the book that gets picked up by the Nazis? Thank you. Sorry. So that then, um, well, that book and also Elizabeth are what get picked up by the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Um, apparently it's disputed whether Elizabeth was a member of the Nazi party. She died in 1935. So like there was a party at that point. Um, what's important is that Hitler attended her funeral. That's a thing that happened. And also, um, when Hitler wanted to give a gift to Mussolini for his birthday, he picked the complete works of Friedrich Nietzsche as the book to, to give to him. So there was this association between the two. And if you kind of like look like what's the most important philosopher to the Nazi party, they're going to say Nietzsche. 
Um, maybe this is more throat clearing than I need to do, but just to say, um, you'll find a large contingent of scholars that say that's a misreading of Nietzsche and is not like actually what he's arguing for. I will say there are weird parts of the genealogy of morals where he has very negative things to say about the Jewish people. And he has some very positive things to say about blonde haired, blue eyed people. But also, also you'll find many scholars who view all of that as metaphor, that blue eye means courage and blonde mean, no, blonde is a metaphor for courage and blue eye is a metaphor for truthfulness. Nietzsche is not a very clear writer is what I'm trying to say. Just I'll move past it if this is not interesting, but um, he was co-opted in a way that probably Nietzsche would not have agreed with. Just so I say that. But if that makes you uncomfortable, just don't read the guy. His writing is kind of crazy anyway. Crazy, but fun. Do you think so? I think so. I think he's a hoot. Okay. He's, it's sometimes hard to tell if he's joking or not. And I guess that's what makes it uncertain if it's a hoot or if it's like a deranged man. Because you can also read, this is a year before he has his mental breakdown. And so it's also like, is this his like last cry for help of, oh yeah, I want some kind of consistency in the world. I can't find it. And then he can't reconcile himself so to the world. I read most of Thus Spake Zarathustra, which is... Earlier. Yeah. And he's, sure, he's a crank, yeah. but he's not, it's not crazy like that. And I didn't find, maybe I just wasn't looking when I was in college, but I didn't find many hints of racism there. Yes. It's in geneal Genealogy of Morals for sure, if you are a motivated reader to see it. And that's... Again, I'm, I'm doing all this because the intro to the book I read also did all this yeah. kind of like work of saying, you're going to read this word. He doesn't mean it this way. You're going to read this sentence. He doesn't mean it that way. I, I think it's totally fair to say that his sister misrepresented his work and did some editing that sort of appealed to the more eugenics and racial purity mo uh, movement of the early 20th century in Germany. But there's also elements of a lot of that stuff. Like it's not like... Uh, the, the the pure Nietzschean writings, so not the stuff that his sister did, are not completely alien to a power movement like the Nazis. Y yes. So he's not he's not completely a strange bedfellow when it comes to fascism. Yes, uh, said differently, there are sentences to be taken out of context that sound bad, right? Like the thing that his sister is twisting is in his writing. Yes, yeah, and and even uh, if you go down, you say, okay, let's be as charitable to and try to let's try to Iron Man or Steel Man his position as strong as possible, and build up without sort of we're not trying to disparage him by painting him with a Nazi brush. Let's actually get his philosophy the the strongest version that we can, and it is something that is a you know is not. Um, out of place amongst a strong man philosophy of government. Or, or authoritarian or, government, yeah, right. of an authority. So I agree with that. I think what he's most often being defended of is the kind of racial component yes, to it. I think, and I think yeah. uh, philosophers aren't really dealing with the, if there's no meaning, then why not have an authoritarian party? Yeah. Because that's not, uh, and maybe I'm sure, again, Nietzsche scholars would have some category for that to say, no, no, he didn't mean that. I think you're right in saying that Nietzsche was not all geeked up about racial purity like right. the early 20th century, that, that sort of contingents of the eugenicist movement in early 20th century Germany were. Right. That just isn't, I don't think, so much on Nietzsche's radar as it is more on his like sister's radar and then the generation that she After. kind of inspired. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is more in the fun fact category, but he um, was also a composer. Do you all know this? So he also made some I did music. not know so this. It, you can look up the Hymn to Life. Is, uh, that's the one that I found. It was like kind of easiest to find performances of. Um, Nietzsche said of his of the Hymn to Life, uh, I think he was, this is in a letter. He was saying that this time music will reach you. I thought, 
maybe this time music will reach you. I want to have a song made that could also be performed in public in order to seduce people to my philosophy. Mm-hmm. And also that the hymn to life, uh, a scare, oh, this is in his writing, the hymn to life, a scarcely trivial symptom of my condition during that year when the yes saying pathos par excellence, which I call the tragic pathos was alive in me to the highest degree. The time will come when it will be sung in my memory. So that last part makes sense. The rest does not, which is probably your, Sufficient preface to getting strong Raskolnikov vibes from this guy, as you should. I mean, isn't that literally yes. what uh, Raskolnikovian? Is yeah. That what you call him? The, I mean, even the part about the beaten horse. Well, I th- and I think Dean. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Dostoevsky is familiar with that story. Oh, with all this stuff. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'd have to look up the timeline on that, though. I got you, bro. Thanks. But so Nietzsche has these very nice things to say about his hymn to life. A uh, pianist at the time, Hans von Bülow, said of Nietzsche's work that they were the most undelightful and the most anti-musical draft on musical paper that I have faced in a long time. So maybe there was some uh, disagreement as to the quality of it. Do you know that um, during his life, Nietzsche couldn't use pencils? Do you know why? Uh, You just thought they were all pointless. I don't get it. It's a joke about life being pointless. Okay. so But they have points. Right, but to Nietzsche, it's all pointless. Oh, this is interesting. Anyway. Okay. So the connection to Leia Party, I'm going to keep going with it. Um, Nietzsche was 12 when Crime and Punishment was started so being like, published. Yeah, interesting. So no. I'm going to go ahead and guess no. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the horse thing happened much, much later. Yeah. So the, I wonder if that's taking from Crime and Punishment and superimposing it on Nietzsche's life. Oh, weird. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, keep going. Could be, because again, it's a legendary account, yeah, yeah. so it probably did not actually happen. Okay. Uh, there are are some connections between Leopardi and Nietzsche, mostly in that uh, Nietzsche read Leopardi. Um, this is from an 1872 lecture. I won't read the German. Leopardi is described by Nietzsche as the greatest prose writer of the century. Uh, we spent most of our time on Leopardi's poetry, which Nietzsche seemed not to be as much a fan of, but Leopardi also had a, uh, a piece of prose called the Small Moral Works or the Operette Morali. Anyway, Nietzsche was very much a fan of it. Okay. I mean, these sad boys got to stick together, right? Yes. Though, I don't think Nietzsche would think of himself as sad. I know. But he wouldn't. Maybe he actually is. All right. Uh, genealogy of Morals will almost certainly om- only get through the first book of it. It's made up of, th- or first essay. It's made up of three essays plus a preface. And the first essay is the most interesting of them. And the second and third kind of devolve into um, Jeremiah or just a railing against the things that um, Nietzsche does not like. So I'll just, I'll read the... And another thing. (laughs) And another thing. It's not far off, honestly. You know what also doesn't matter? (laughs) This thing. Let me read from the, I mean, by the end of it, he's literally just like reaching for topics. He'll... He, he's railing against religion for the entire essay and then, or the entire book. And then at the very end talks about also how science is, uh, totally debunked by his methods and also nothing is knowable. Therefore the end. Anyway. So seems like a weird thing to put it at the end of a book where you're talking about how to know certain things. Mm, because he puts himself as the master of reality, right? Like he is the one who sees through the veil, uh, in the same way of, the old image of the the cave, right? He sees himself as the one who's left the cave and has seen what really is and therefore must tell everyone about it, which I think is what he's doing in Zarathustra. It just seems self-contradictory. Like, here's a whole book about my philosophy. Also, nothing is knowable. Yeah. Right? Just just like the statement, everything is relative. Yeah, but again, his goal isn't 
a coherence. His goal is not truth. His goal is mm, fair enough expression. Let me. I'll read. Yeah, the, go ahead. Just the fir- the very opening of the preface. So this is the first line of the genealogy of morals. We are unknown to ourselves, we knowers, and with good reason. We have never looked for ourselves. So how are we ever supposed to find ourselves? How right is the saying, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our treasure is where the hives of our knowledge are. What say you? This is the opening of a book. You gonna you gonna keep reading after this? It seems fun. Okay. You're funny. I like it. I mean, he's making some pretty big claims about how people feel about themselves. That is true. No one has ever searched for themselves. You ever talked to a high school kid? Sure. I got some high school kids who are constantly searching for themselves. He's writing in the 1880s at this point. So I wonder if, you know, 130 years ago, there's some difference in mm, that. Maybe. But maybe, I don't know. All right. This preface, again, is to set up what he's going to go through in the book. Uh, the, the oh, polemic. Polemic was the word we mm. were looking for mm. before. Mm-hmm. I, he uses the word to describe his own work. My thoughts on the descent of our moral prejudices. That is what this polemic is about. The descent of our moral prejudices. What do you want to, you hear that D-E-S-C-E-N-T or D-I-S-S-E-N-T? Uh, E-S-C-E-N-T. So like a, de- like a deg- degradation. Go- going down. Yeah. yeah. So when you hear that phrase, descent of our moral prejudices, what does that set you up to think he's going to talk about? Everything's going screwy. <laughs> That's probably true. I think that phrase, the moral prejudices, is also an evocative term that the things that we call moral or the things that we call right are merely prejudices. Mm-hmm. I think sets up very well the idea that he's going to dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, the That's mostly what he's going to talk about. He is going to base his argument on philology. Now, Parts of this argument I will not be able to convey very well because he's referencing words in Greek and he uses like the Greek alphabet, which I don't know how to read. Maybe you all do. But he will be looking at a history or a close connection between words and he will derive from that some meaning of the relationship between those words. And whether you find that compelling or not, we can go through. But that is kind of the the origin of and his. And then from that comparison, he's building big conclusions? Yes. Ooh, that sounds a little spurious. Can you say why? Well, just because it's like one data point to, to spin off into a whole theolo- a theory of something. Sure. Um, Can I say... Like if you got the word wrong. Uh, yes. I think It's that, like the whole like Jehovah Yahweh thing, right? On the... Like a... Like the word Jehovah is like just a, the, a right. misrepresentation of Yahweh. Because they just put letters in. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you can't pronounce... You can't. No, no, no. It was just that the, the bad... The guy um, who translated the Old Testament and wrote Jehovah did his Hebrew wrong. And he put in consonants where there, he put in vowels where there wasn't supposed to be. Right to make it pronounceable. Right? Uh, I guess I don't know if it, I don't know the reason behind it. All I know is that Jehovah is like not the. It's Yahweh, but he put in Yahweh Hoa and put in too many too many vowels, and now we got Jehovah. But that's just like no one never like that's not a word in the Bible. Maybe the only so first I'd say. What you're saying is my problem with the entire essay because he's presenting as credible evidence something that I'm not used to considering. Again, the origin of a word and its use over time as indicative of like anything. <laughs> but um, I'm only very little into this and I know a, a patron asked for me to do an episode on this book, which I will get to, I promise. Um, I think it's Dr. Chain, I think it's James Turner, Dr. James Turner put out a book on philology and it's like a history of this field. And it was a very well-respected field 
until it essentially disappeared into classics departments in the last 50 years or so. So yes, it sounds spurious, but also it's not only one word as a data point, it's one word used every year by thousands of people is the data point. Is that, am I being clear on that? Maybe. It's more than just there's one word and there's another word. It is, there's one word that's been used this way for a long time and another word closely related to it that's also been used oh, over that same saying. time. Oh, yeah. It's like if our word for cat was really close to our word for, or cat and cute, I don't know, I'm making that up. Those aren't related. But like, um, if we... There's use, like whiskey and whisk on or something. Yes, yeah, and yeah. like that close relationship between them could mean something because gotcha. speakers of it would relate those two words mm-hmm. to each other. It's it's similar to when you read Bible translations and they'll talk about like the wordplay in Hebrews mm-hmm. and like how that means something. That's not far off from what philology is doing. If you can extract meaning from the words themselves, why not get this kind of philosophical meaning from it too? Gotcha. You might find that not compelling, but it's his training. It's the, again, first academic post that he was made to. Okay. So in this first book, uh, or first essay, he is tracking the origin of these two dichotomies. One is good and evil and one is good and bad. So how did we get good and evil? How did we get good and bad? Do y'all want to give an answer to why, why do we have a conception of good and why do we have a conception of evil? Evil as opposed to bad. Ah, these are two separate. mm, So evil and bad are not contrasted with each other because they're, like the, the opposite is good in both cases. Um, he good is, and evil is told to us in the tradition and good and bad is something that we can observe ourselves. I don't know. That, that, I'm just saying like, how do we know what a good thing is versus a not good oh, thing? Like, where does that come from? Our own preferences? Sure. I mean, that's one way that people have answered that. That's kind of the, um, um, like a rationalist understanding. I suppose of you could look at it like a philologist and <laughs> track how good has been applied to various items over time. Nice try. Is this like the didn't get it? The kid sucking up to the teacher of like, is this what he's looking for right now? Yeah, I'm not totally. looking for the right answer. I'm just like I'm again. His approach to answering these questions is not how I would think about doing this. So your question to us is how do, how did we get yeah, these we conceptions get or how did we yeah. get the words? No or? conception. The conception. The conception. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go to the the traditional classical stuff way and reference the Tao. Right. There are some things that are good and we recognize them as good, and some things that are evil and we recognize them as evil. But do um, we know that because we reason that ourselves? Do we We know that because it's created in. I think there's... So something natural in us. Something very natural in humanity. I would say that if you try to establish it from the materialist point of view, you'd have to, or naturalism, you'd have to say that it is a, a function of the survival of the species. Yeah, it's, it's somehow come about from a, yeah, our ability to survive. And so things that help us generally survive as a species we've labeled as good and things that have been dangerous to our survival as a species we've labeled as bad. For example, our progeny survive better when there are two committed parents, and so adultery we have labeled as bad because it means less likely for the progeny to survive with only a single parent. Sure. Yeah. Um, or we say Nazism is bad because it ended in the you know annihilation of millions. So that kind of thing, where it's the, the survival of the species is what gives us that notion. You could also, so it's almost like a very pragmatic way of talking about good and evil. Or right. Good and bad. Yeah. You could also say that it comes from, I mean, I'm, this might be where Nietzsche goes with it, but that people in power have imposed the notion of good and evil upon everyone because what I say is good and what you want to do that is not what I say, that is bad or evil. And so really it is the powerful who determine what is good 
and what is evil. So your second, so you've 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 nailed nailed both of them. Good and evil develops separately from good and bad, and good and bad is the one he deals with first. And good and bad comes from the difference between people who are in power versus those not in power. And so the, there are people who are in power, and they get to say this stuff is noble, and some things are base, like uh, as in like beneath them, like based, not based. Thank oh. you. Uh, thank you for your internet humor. I knew it had to be one of you, but okay. So, um, but no, like uh, one is simple and one is refined. And that's what then leads to this good, bad distinction. Here's, uh, I, I'll read it to you right here. I'm going to butcher the German. The best example for this, for the latter, oh, uh, um, the first part is translated, um, that everywhere noble, aristocratic, and social terms is the basic concept from which necessarily good, in the sense of spiritually noble, aristocratic, of spiritually high-minded, spiritually privileged, developed. A de- development that always runs parallel with the other one, which ultimately transfers common, plebeian, low into the concept bad. So here's, here's your example in German. The best example for the latter is the German word schlecht, S-C-H-L-E-C-H-T, which means bad itself, which is identical with schlicht, S-C-H-L-I-C-H-T. They're off by one letter, E in the first one, I in the second one, which means plain or simple. Then compare schlechtweg, plainly, schlechterdings, simply, and originally referred to the simple, the common man with no derogatory implication, but simply in contrast to the nobility. So bad and plain are one letter off in the German language. And that's his evidence for this relationship between um, the common or commoner, maybe as a way of thinking about it, and bad. Or you could use the, like, there are several other corollaries, right? The word vulgar used to just mean the commoner. And uh, plebeian, which now is yet used by a generation of internet people to mean negative, right, was the plebeians. Transferred, right? So I can can see an argument for the word referencing the common people, even the word common, right? Having a negative connotation to it, mm-hmm. when except a, in the in the notion of the rapper, who is who I think we can all agree is excellent. Excellent, sir. So then, that then is the source of a good bad distinction. People in power, people of aristocracy, establish something as the way things should be, and then those who are kind of beneath them don't do that, and that becomes bad. But you can you can spin all sorts of madness. Like I could say that house and mouse are one letter off, and sure. I spend too much time with my cursor, therefore I live in the internet. And you're because, cursed. And I'm cursed. Like, right? Like, you're, that's, that's crazy. You could live in, I mean, you do live in the internet, don't but you? But I'm just saying, like, but the reason that house and mouse are one letter off is because that's what the words mean. Like, that's, that's what he's saying. Well, that vulgar, yeah. that he's saying that base and bad are one letter off, therefore they are similar concepts. Yes. I could say that house and mouse are one letter off, therefore they're similar concepts. Well, but mice live in houses, so. I'm just, and they're silly. in your house. This is silliness. What the, they do? Yeah, sure. Yeah, but your, your jokes are proving my point that this is, <laughs> this is silly. I think our jokes are proving that I found this hard to read also. I find it hard to kind of generate the story from it. But I would also say that the tool he's employing is like a really common one. So when Aristotle talks about the origin of money, do you remember his story for the origin of money? There are all these people living in a community and they all make their own thing and they need to find a way to exchange value. And they run into trouble where the people with the oranges can't find a way to trade with the people with the sheepskin. So they invent an intermediary currency mm-hmm. to kind of mediate that um, process. That's the story he lays out. That's not what happened. And that's uh, David Graeber has a great book on the history of debt that kind of tears this view apart. It's a very common method to kind of point to long ago, this is the way things were. Therefore, this is how things are now. 
And so he might be right or wrong, but it's a common method that's used. Uh, I'm not really defending it because I don't. No, you're just saying this is why he's here's doing another it. thing that does that. No, I'm just thing. saying this is why he's doing it. Like yeah. this is not an uncommon method. And eventually I'd like to get to a place where I can defend philology more clearly. And I'm just not at that place. Right I now. can buy it better if he's less the like one letter off thing, but more the, the word used to apply to the common man with no derogatory connotation. But it did. And now it means something negative. Oh, I mean, is it the I, same word or is it the word that's one letter off? Off by, off by one letter. Oh, that's, but that's why, rougher. but he, he doesn't make these steps, but really it's like probably, I, I believe under the assumption that we just had the one word before and then it kind of, we needed a different word. And so they just picked the one that's one letter off. Does that mean like, so we had schlicked and then we needed some way to describe these bad people. And so schlecht is the one that got chosen. But I'm with Graham on this one where that, we don't know that that's the way it develops. Correct. hundred yeah. percent. But we do know that that's how the languages are similar. So said differently, is there any meaning to be derived from the similarity of the languages? That's, that's, that's the debate. Which uh, uh, up until 50 years ago, the answer would have been yes. And this would be treated as a serious department. He is not at this point a philologist, but that is, again, the thing he was hired to do, the training he experienced, and was a like major department at all universities. Okay. So I'm not saying he's doing it well, because I don't know, and that's a topic for a future episode. But that's his argument for the descent of morality, that we can find these words that are related to each other, and then if you believe there's any meaning attached to that, then that's where this morality comes from. Color me skeptical. That's fine. Yeah. As, as you should be. Uh, and can we also bring back the phrenology department? Miss that department. No, you don't. <laughs> is phrenology the, the uh, forehead or is that the brain one? It's where you touch touch the head and the shape of the head. Shape of the head it is. Yeah. He, he, he will reference a phrenologist positively later. I'm sure I won't actually. Anyway, I'm sure we won't actually get there. Um, so this is the basic argument that he gets to for how good and bad descend is this association was developed between people in power and people not in power. And then the associations with that became good for those in power, bad for those not in power that these are then handed off over time. And that's then how we get it. What he's not dealing with is the idea that a good thing is actually good or a bad thing is actually bad. And this is because he, it's just a history of power. It's just a history of power. And I'm not going to phrase this right. Cause I don't know how to phrase this, but he doesn't believe in metaphysics. He doesn't believe that mm-hmm. anything can be known in and of itself. He thinks it can only be known contingently. It can only be known that a thing is good or bad based on how that word has been used over time, not hmm. based on whether it's good or bad in and of itself. That category doesn't exist to him. It's That part is in the section we won't get to at the very, very end. So is this the... Help clarify for me. Is this the bulverism fallacy where he is attempting to... I wanted to, you to talk about this. ...to disprove... I'm so happy. Yeah? Man, this never... Wow, okay. Uh, bulverism is a term made up by C.S. Lewis, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. And Lewis will say that the masters of bulverism are... Mar- or actually, I'm sorry. Let's do a Graham quote first. John Paul II had something to say about Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. What did he call them? The masters of... I don't know. Oh, you've said this before. Masters of suspicion. Hmm. Lewis, in talking about these people, will accuse them of a logical fallacy called bulverism. The logical fallacy is where you'd attempt to disprove something by, by noting how it came to be. Yes. Um, for example, you, this, this happens most often, I would say, when I talk about my faith, right? They say, you're just a Christian because you grew up in a, parent, in a Christian household. Well, you've correctly identified why I am probably a Christian. That does not necessarily mean I am wrong, right? Right. The equivalent would maybe perhaps be saying... You believe in math because you went to a school that taught math. Right. Yes. 
That is uh, factual, right. but math doesn't mean that I'm wrong about math, right? So that, that attempt to disprove or discredit something by showing how one came to believe their position is not a good proof about why that doesn't work. It doesn't deal with the idea itself. It's kind of a sidestepping mm-hmm. of the issue. So yeah. even if he is correct in saying that, yeah, this is how the word developed, it doesn't, like, maybe there is a, a good and bad, and the nobility had the money and wherewithal to buy, purchase, and enjoy the good, right. while the common man did not have any money, could not, you know, practice hygiene, yeah. didn't have good houses. Like, no He's wonder it's a bad house. Here. It's a common house, right? right? But He's not talking about the thing itself. He's no. talking about its origin the thing around and it. using yes. the origin as a disproving, uh, to basically not talk about the thing itself, but to to undercut the thing. Well, he would say there is no origin. Yeah, so that's yeah, the yeah. part where yeah. I don't know if it's, I understand Lewis calling it a fallacy, and I think there are ways to use it fallaciously, but I think what Nietzsche is doing is he's doing this tracing of history to say, because there's no origin, the only way we can understand this is as a historical development, and this is the historical development. Simple became associated with bad. Noble became associated with good. That's why we have this thing today. So it's not, there's no, there's no there there. There's only a history of language that so his, brought that about. His premise is that morals aren't a thing anyway. Is, did he assume that we would be on board as an audience because we've already read one of his other books? He references his other books quite a bit. And I will say again, okay. Genealogy of Morals is like the second second to last book he writes or third okay, to last. Okay, gotcha. So this because Will to Power is like a fake book and is put together by his sister, this is probably closest to a magnum opus because it's not like crazy like Ekeomo. So yes, kind of. And I'm obviously giving a much simplified version because I spent way too long on the background and biography. But yes, if you've read other Nietzsche, more of this will make sense. Am I answering your question? What's your question? My question, so if as a premise he has already assumed that we as an audience also believe that there is no right or wrong, then he is oh. not using this as a proof to discredit the notion of right or wrong. He's simply you assuming we all don't believe the whole people, everyone in this conversation doesn't believe in right and wrong. Yeah. Therefore here is how, here's a little history lesson on how they came to be. If he is trying to say right and wrong do not exist because here are some words that, that were associated with them and here's how they developed. That is a, that is fallacy. But to say, nobody believes in right or wrong, here's some stuff about how they developed, that is not a fallacy. I think, I think your question is essentially like, before reading any scientific study, does the scientist need to lay out the scientific method and buy us over to the scientific method and then show us the study? Because philology was a like widely respected department, he didn't have to do that kind of no. work on the front end. My question is, is this a proof against morality or simply more information about morality? He is describing where morality came from. Okay, then no, this is not, not trying to say this is why morals are not a thing or here's proving that right and wrong are not a thing. Well, he uh, proof is like that. It's not a proof in that he's tracing the history and that there's no like first person who wrote the dictionary to establish like this is what the word means. Okay, well, if, he, if he's just trying to establish the history of the words and not saying therefore right and wrong or good and evil are not reliable, if the therefore is there, it's a fallacy. If the therefore is uh, not there, it's not a fallacy. Again, the only reason I'm not sure that that's true is it's the question of whether there is an origin at the beginning. No, no, he's, he's just saying like you morons think this is good and this is bad because yes. you live with this in language bouncing around in your head. Okay, yes. if he says you think this because... Then that's a fallacy. Then it's bulverism. Uh, I mean, you're, I will you're say you're conditioned by the very language to think this is good and think this is bad. But I can prove to you that it's not because it's just. And a that, word. that's my thing. Is if is, if this is a proof that good and evil don't exist or are not really a thing, or this is why we believe it, then it, then it seems to me to be bulverism. But if he's simply saying we all agree that good and evil aren't a thing, here is how the words have developed. 
I think that's fine. The only thing that I just, I don't, <coughs> excuse me, something to consider is that Bolferism as a term doesn't exist when Nietzsche is writing. Mm. And so I think there's something to that idea doesn't develop until later because I want to put a pin in this and move past it because I don't want to get stuck in it. Sure. But the approach that he's taking is one that's respected at the time. He's not just pointing and saying, I, Nietzsche, think these things. He's saying this is the development of language over time and um, there's no reason for him to think that there's an origin, I guess I would say. So his readers buy the fact that philology is yes. a useful science. Yeah, and again, the people reading this are not like, you know, your commoner in 1880-whatever. Yeah. Like, this is academics he's writing mm-hmm. to. So just to say, there's a lot of your point probably during the AMA that there are, like, certain blind spots that people have. This is, Like, this is just an accepted way of doing history that he's approaching here, even if we today don't find it convincing. But I th- the part we... Well, we definitely have to wrap this episode up, sorry, is, like, um, the approach that he's taking has such cultural influence down the road. I think it really matters if the foundational works he's writing that kind of establish that there's no meaning to anything in the world. Uh, if they are found wanting, that should be an attack on nihilism is a, is a bad word for it, but kind of a meaninglessness to good and bad, good and evil. And I think that's what's interesting to me in reading this, that I think nihilism is one out culturally in many ways. Um, it's kind of an easy default philo- philosophical position to hold. But if you look at its origin, it's found lacking in a lot of significant ways. And that's what you're pointing Mm -hmm. to, that the only way you get there is through these big assumptions as Mm -hmm. to why did, I'll make your Bolferism point even stronger. He's saying that the only reason that noble noble aristocrats are um, establishing something as good is because they're in power, not because they're using their power for good Mm -hmm. or wanting to establish like good societies like uh, Plato would talk about in the Republic. So it goes even deeper than just you knuckleheads reading this today think good and bad. Those knuckleheads 10,000 years ago were also knuckleheads because they were just living out their right. um, social identities. Um, man, we're definitely over an hour already. So I don't know if we'll come back to this or not. But we should. Can we? I don't know. Um, I, I feel like for having – yeah, I don't know. I would like to. Uh, uh, but um, maybe I'll just – I don't even want to – yeah. We'll just – the he's tracing two different – genealogies in this first book that's good and bad and then good and evil and good and evil is what uh, emerges from a religious conviction that originally starts as i think one of you said this earlier a cleanliness uncleanliness dichotomy that Mm. like bathing is a a good thing to do and um not bathing could lead to illness illness is evil in a different way that uncouthness or simpleness or commonness is and therefore, you get this establishment of evil, disease, death, things like that. Um, and so good and evil come out of this kind of um, purification, religious angle of things, and good and bad come out of this difference between the noble and the common people. Um, there's much more to say about it. Uh, I'll probably, I don't know. I don't know. We'll come back to it. But that's this is kind of his way of approaching. Why do we have morals? Where do they come from? We can look at language to determine something about them. And... It's probably found wanting. I would love to hear what listeners actually think about this. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, let's keep talking about, again, I want to talk about like a modern day like celebration of a Nietzschean nihilism, which I think is everything everywhere all at once, which we'll do in our in-between. Cool. All right. Well, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. Thank you, Thomas. That was a great episode. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at, email us at theguysatclassicalstuff.net. We try to answer as many of those as we can, but, you know, we're only three guys and some of us have families and 
So we don't get to all the emails, but we do read them all. So if you have sent one in and haven't gotten a response, know that we are reading them, even if we can't don't have time to respond to all of them. Um, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical stuff, right? You got it. And then you can tweet at us at C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. We're still trying to get that at classical stuff moniker, but uh, we've been refused, it's shot, hard, shot down by the twits. It's true. So we can't get it, but yeah, you can get in touch with us that way. And you can find us on any, pretty much any platform that's out there to, to find our podcast. And you already know that because <laughs> you're listening. You're listening. Okay. And thanks. Yep. That's it for us. Bye. Bye. Bye.